Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, we're gearing up for a big election year in 2024. And while eyes are currently on former President Trump and his many criminal and civil court cases, there are a lot of important races actually right here in California. That's right. And we're going to look ahead with the KQED politics team, as well as one of our favorite breakdown guests, Melanie Mason. She's a senior political reporter for Politico covering California. We'll tell you some big issues and campaigns to watch, maybe even make some predictions. Yeah, maybe. I thought we were out of that business. Maybe. But, yeah, yeah. but joining us to start our Guy Marzarati, KQED politics politics correspondent. Hey, Guy. Hey. And Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, politics reporter, also here at KQED. Welcome. Yo. The gang is here. We're all in here for uh, end of the year look ahead. So I, I think we want to start this segment by really talking about a big sort of policy bucket, which is public safety. We have heard a lot in recent years, you know, from the Chase Abu Dean recall, the DA here in San Francisco, now one out in Oakland, an attempt to recall the DA there. Um, we've had a bunch of these hearings recently around retail theft. Um, There's an attempt to challenge some of the judges here in San Francisco for allegedly not being tough enough on crime. So, I mean, Joe, you've watched this city and this state for a while. Like, what do you feel like the vibe is right now? I mean, what I really want to see at the end of this election, what I really want to measure the temperature of is just how far have we moved in that direction you're talking about, this tough on crime direction, and does it bleed out into other areas? Because it does feel like we are seeing this kind of worry for just what's happening on the streets, on the ground, and it's wrapping in everything, homelessness, crime, all of it. Do you think it's that it's more visible or that more people are talking about it or that we've been talking about it so long and that it seems like it's intractable? I mean, what's going on? I mean, part of it is we're coming out of the pandemic, right? How sharp was that divide between being at home, some of us, lucky ones of us, and not seeing things happen and all of a sudden coming out to the homelessness and the shoplifting and all this? The data says It's not that different. The data even says it's lower than where we've been historically. But when you go outside after being shut in for so long, it's stark. And I think we also have to talk about perception. I mean, so much of public safety is not necessarily about data and numbers. It's about how you feel. And in addition to the stuff Joe just pointed out, you know, we are on the heels of a really big decade of reforms around criminal justice. And we live in a world where everyone's got a cell phone and can videotape every misbehavior and put it on the World Wide Web. Yeah, and I think a lot of those massive, you know, these retail thefts that get caught on camera are driving a lot of the conversation around this. But you mentioned the state reforms. I do think Prop 47, huge criminal justice reform, turns 10 in 2024. 
I know, Marisa, you've been covering it since it left the delivery room. But it's showing I, its age. <laughs> right. I think it is. You are seeing kind of the conventional wisdom line up that, you know, maybe it's time for a reevaluation. You see these rising rates of, of commercial theft. Um, you see, you know, retail theft hearings happening at the state capitol. And Prop 47 becoming a scapegoat for a lot of what's going on. I mean, becoming, it's been, let's be real. That's I mean, <laughs> since it passed, a law enforcement and a lot of critics have really, I think, I mean, one of my jokes as I've been reporting on this, because I'm tease here, I'm going to be doing a big series in the new year on all of this, is like, is Prop 47 the cause of all of life's problems? <laughs> but it does like, seem to have, it does have I stubbed my toe. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem that property crime is the one area where there's maybe the most active dispute about the Absolutely. impact of it. You know, there has, there's been, it, and it goes up and down all the time. COVID, you know, it just, right. it bounces around. But and that, isn't that part of the irony here is that if you actually look, I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s and, you know, at a time when you had very high violent crime and a lot of of, um, you know, pushback on that, but also really high rates of crime also among young people. Um, you don't have that. I mean, this is something like Maryland and Breed in San Francisco brings up. This is a relatively safe city, but quality of life matters, you know? It well, does. And yeah, go ahead, Joe. Well, it's just interesting. When I was growing up here in San Francisco, in high school, I can remember not wanting to go to the mission. I'm Latino. I was afraid of people pulling a gun on me and right. saying, who do you claim? That was the reality of and growing up in San Francisco. there was gang shootings all the time. Constantly. You were constantly hearing about people being shot and killed in the mission. And so, and that is not the reality of where we are now. Well, I'm interested. I'm wondering if like, you know, property crimes maybe are more of an uh, equal opportunity crime. You know, and I know any number of people whose cars have been broken into or things like that. But crime that's violent tends to be in neighborhoods that maybe people don't visit as often, you know, and maybe don't get the kind of but attention again, I mean, that they should. I mean, the numbers are very low. And when we do know that there's a lot of squishiness around property crime data, there's not around murder rates and things like right. that. Those are reported. We know what those are. I mean, I think back to sort of, you know, the politics of all of this, like, <laughs> What do you see? Maybe guys start with you. I mean, it's not just Pamela Price being potentially, you know, facing a recall. You have George Gascon in L.A., the D.A. there who has faced pushback from the day he got sworn in. And he's being challenged now by Nathan Hockman, an attorney who's run for attorney general, who has experience. I mean, this is one place a Republican could potentially mount a challenge. Yeah, especially in a race like that where it's not partisan affiliated. Um, that, But that's honestly what surprised me so much about this hearing that took place in Sacramento this week in the state legislature focused on retail theft was that Democrats really planted the flag that they were not, you know, pushing back on this kind of uh, conventional wisdom that, oh, this is ripe for change in 2024. You're having a lot of turnover among key committee heads in Sacramento. I think there's a lot of eyes on this. They really planted the flag that, no, they're not really ready to take this step mm. and change up Prop 47. And a lot of that was about pushing some of the folks at the hearing, retailers, uh, district attorneys, about where is the data that's actually lining up towards Prop 47 being the problem. There, you know, there was a lot of contentious exchanges between, you know, folks that own malls about, okay, you're saying California is a really bad place to do business, but we don't really have a lot of comparative data between retailers throughout the country. And the same goes, you know, for for prosecutors who really put the blame in addition to Prop 47 on AB 109 realignment. The idea that, you know, jails are just so overcrowded that folks that are in there for misdemeanors are quickly getting let out. You know, there was a prosecutor for Riverside that got grilled by Assemblymember Mia Bonta from Oakland, who was saying, look, you're talking about this from your county perspective. I can't make changes based on that. I'm going to need to see data statewide on this. Well, and at the local level, Mayor Breed, has, who's kind of been all over the place. I mean, she was for defunding <laughs> yeah. the police, you know, right after George Floyd was murdered. 
Uh, now she's going to have a ballot measure to increase police staffing and drug testing for people that get certain benefits. Uh, Joe, where do you think that's going? I mean, is this is this is she, she's obviously trying to get ahead of or catch up to public opinion, maybe. But is that going to work for her? You know, a bit. But I, I would push back a bit and say that London Breed has always been someone who's had a close relationship with police. Mm-hmm. I mean, she knew former police chief Greg Sir from back in her time growing up in the Fillmore and counted him as a friend and was one of the supervisors who was slowest to call for his ouster. So for a long time, I think this is really Breed coming back to form. Breed mm-hmm. getting to uh, embrace what she's always wanted to embrace, which is this kind of uh, the t- tough on crime messaging. Uh, now the moment has kind of aligned with her views. Hmm. Interesting. So, all right. So we have the mayor's race here where public safety is going to play big. We've mentioned these DA races. Um, just broad brush strokes. I mean, do you guys see any other like non-law enforcement kind of executive type races? Do you think this will be an issue in any other type of campaigns? Well, I mean, I actually think something Joe's been reporting on local judicial races, superior right. court races, I think could be the next frontier in this kind of clash between progressive and moderate views on law enforcement. I mean, you've been reporting on these judges in SF. And I think structurally, the issues that judges face in defending themselves on the ballot is sets this up to be something that I think we're seeing now in SF. We'll probably see in other counties. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So essentially, the judicial canons, right, in the state of California, which are unique, um, say that, you know, you cannot really prejudice the judicial process by talking about how you're going to rule from the bench in a broad way. So when someone asks in like a town hall meeting, hey, sitting judge, I'm going to vote for you. Tell me how you're going to rule from the bench. How are you going to keep me safe? They really can't answer. Well, and it's troubling, I think, that you've got these sort of self-appointed judges of judges going into courtrooms in San Francisco and evaluating judges on how tough on crime they are. And Marisa, you know as well as anyone, because you've reported on some of these high-profile crimes that when you dig into the details, it's like not as clear-cut as you think. I mean, I think it's very easy to say, oh, this charge was filed and they agreed to this plea and that's their lenient. But like that ignores so much nuance, so many details. And I think what's interesting is if any of these judicial challengers are successful, to Guy's point, then how are their hands tied once they're on the bench if they have made very clear statements about their positions? Well, will they even be able to be on the right, bench right. In, in charge of criminal well, courts? I'm thinking, What's I'm, lost in this is is that, you know, you're not elected into a criminal court seat right. like the presiding judge chooses where you go. Will a presiding judge let these judicial candidates, if they are elected, be in a criminal court considering the statements well, they made? Well, you do see on occasion judges become the target of people's dissatisfaction. I'm thinking of Aaron Pes- Pesky, uh, Persky yeah. down in Santa Clara who gave a relatively what seemed to many like a lenient sentence of six months for that student. Brock Turner, who was convicted on three counts of sexual assault of a, of a unconscious uh, student at Stanford. He was recalled. And then going all the way back to the 80s, you saw three of Jerry Brown's judges, including Roseburg, get recalled over the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you know, the electorate's changed a lot, but it does. Those, those public safety questions do resonate, I think, with a lot of people. Absolutely. All right. We got to leave it there. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we will continue our conversation with Guy and welcome Politico senior reporter Melanie Mason. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we're talking 2024 with KQED's own Guy Marzarati, and we are thrilled to welcome back to the show Melanie Mason. She's a senior political reporter for Politico covering California. Hey, Mel. Hey, friends. How's it going? Hey. Good to hear your voice from L.A. So I think we should start with the big one, the U.S. Senate race. We've got three Democratic members of Congress, Katie Porter, Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee, all vying for this. You also have former Dodgers star Steve Garvey, uh, Eric Early, who we've had on the show. Um, Tell us where this is at, Melanie. Like we just saw I mean, you guys just put out a new poll uh, today. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like this race, which, you know, we've been covering for a year now. Our whole lives. (laughs) In some ways, yes. Um, Really feels like it's starting to take shape. And we're going to be entering, particularly, I think, once we get past the new year, the real sort of um, uh, action in this primary. So what our poll found today is that uh, Adam Schiff has a pretty clear lead um, uh, to be able to make it into the top two in March. And then it's really what we're looking at is a race for second place. And that's between Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. And then Steve Garvey, who, you know, entered the race just in October, has been running a pretty bare bones campaign. Witness protection, we joke. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know, there he is. I mean, it, it, our, our, our poll found that they're all essentially statistically tied. But still, he's right up there uh, with these two very well-known Democrats who have been running since January and February. So um, I certainly think that we are now looking potentially more at a as a, at a Republican versus Democrat general election, which I think if you had asked us a couple of uh, months ago, would think that that was more unlikely. So I think we're actually getting to the interesting part right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, whoever comes in third, if it's a Democrat, uh, if there is a Democrat on Republican race, the the Democrats who lose out are going to be disappointed, of course. And, uh, you know, but I think nationally, the Democrats are going to be quite happy that they don't have to shovel a lot of money into a race where it's between two Democrats who are perfectly acceptable to like 85, 90 percent of Democrats. So that's would be a plus. Obviously, though, uh, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee have a different point of view. And, you know, as the poll shows it's very competitive i mean what do you think about barbara lee playing up there because she because this poll guy showed her i think a a little further ahead um in the mix more than some of the previous ones yeah look i mean i've been saying for weeks i really don't think 
two Democrats are going to make it into this general election. I could be prediction could number be one. Wrong. Oh, Fitt, you, I, I never heard that on the I, air. I said it on our prediction <laughs> podcast a few weeks back. I think the best comp for this is 2018, the primary for governor, where we spent so much time ruminating on a Newsom via Ragosa general election that never came to that be. we wanted. <laughs> and I think, look, I I think this really highlights the uh, statement that Katie Porter put out this week regarding her position on a ceasefire in Gaza. It puts Sum it, that up for us. Guy. Well, <laughs> it's you know, hard. Up, up until this point, Barbara Lee had really stood out for her calls for a ceasefire, dating back, uh, you know, months right. uh, in this race, and it stood out for her clearly at the Democratic Party convention in Sacramento, where she was cheered by a lot of protesters who showed up there. Katie Porter came out this week and said she's actually now for a conditional ceasefire, which uh, I think viewing it through the lens of one Democrat making it into the general election might make sense. I think Porter might be at a position in this race where she feels like she has to pull from the two kind of wings that we see. Adam Schiff operating the more moderate lane, Barbara Lee more of a progressive. Now, we'll see if this if it turns out to be a wise move. You could say, look, she's putting out this statement calling for a conditional ceasefire. Maybe she's laying kind of the permission structure for progressives to come home to her or not. Maybe it could be progressives see this as, look, this is way too many civilian deaths late for you to actually be calling for this. And one of those conditions was the ongoing security of Israel, which I think a lot of people and would Israel look at. And Israel agreeing I mean, there's so many. Yeah. yeah. And both sides agreeing to I do wonder me. about the timing of this, Mel, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts because obviously Adam Schiff has attached himself as the, you know, thorn, permanent thorn in Trump's side. And he has been in the news more, certainly within this past week. Now, I don't know, maybe that didn't really affect the poll very much, but you have to figure that the more Trump is in the news as, and he's he's on TV and radio complaining about him and criticizing him, that's got to help him. He's got that natural reason to be on that's TV. His lane, that, yeah. That's his lane. Exactly. I mean, see, it's really the, the, basis or the main selling point of his campaign, which isn't to say that that's the only you know uh, virtue he has to his resume. I mean, obviously, he's been in Congress for um, since 2000. But the way that most voters know him now is as the face of this impeachment. And he is running on this, you know, I have to save democracy platform. I mean, that really is the sort of opening pitch. It was the complete sort of focus of his launch video back in January, if we can think back that long ago. <laughs> I mean, they actually had a string of of video clips of people insulting him because it was sort of the MAGA commentators and wing of the party, which is not the most normal sort of launch video you would see, but because he was trying to establish himself as like, I'm the guy that Trump people hate. And so, yes, as you are getting more and more Trump uh, news, and as we're just getting closer to the presidential primary, right, which is, I think, where we're going to be hearing more about Trump all the time, it just gives Schiff a reason to, to say, particularly, I think, also to maybe more liberal to even progressive Democrats, who otherwise, I think, would have seen him as just kind of the centrist Democrat mm -hmm. in the race. Like, there's a reason that you all like me, too. You saw me as the face of this impeachment. Remember um, me on MSNBC every week. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, speaking of Trump, the biggest thing I'm going to be watching in this race in the next eight weeks is, does Trump endorse in this race? Because mm -hmm. if you go back and look at 2018, the thing that pushed John Cox over the edge that spring over Villaraigosa was Trump coming in and making that endorsement, I think to consolidate the Republican vote, two things right. need to happen for Garvey. Number one, yes, he needs to pull the Undertaker meme and actually come out and, and start campaigning over the next few weeks. But that Trump endorsement would be such a big boon for him and really, I think, spell trouble for two out of three of these Democrats. Although then does it like I mean, obviously, it's an uphill climb after that primary to get 
to win the race, but then you it have is anyway though. I mean, the R next to his name is doing that. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But I mean, let's let's shift this a little and talk about maybe a little bit how Trump might play in some of these purple districts, these congressional races. Right? We have a series Orange County, Central Valley, uh, some east of the Bay Area, where you have often rematches um, between candidates, uh, Republicans being challenged by Democrats who had challenged them before. Uh, Melanie, I mean, I'm curious to you. I feel like this fall there was a lot of talk of like, oh, how much would, you know, the chaos in the House impact these races? How much will the votes that every single Republican took to move forward with an impeachment of Joe Biden play? How much does all the Trump legal drama play? Like, what's your sense? You know, I think that there is an assumption among Democrats that, you know, presidential years, presidential turnout favors them, and that Trump is really unpopular in these districts, like these Orange County districts, as you mentioned, um, that there is registration advantages for Democrats in some of these Central Valley districts. And so I hear a lot about, about you know, 2024 presidential turnout. And I have to say, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, are we not remembering 2020? I mean, yes, you know, Biden won, and Biden won very handily in some of these districts, but you actually had Democrats in California kind of lose ground in the House races. You had those two Orange County Republicans, Young Kim and Michelle Steele, win those seats. You had David Valadeo win back his seat um, in the Central Valley. And so I I think that we are in the moment right now of this political recalibration where high turnout elections are now maybe not necessarily privileging privileging Democrats like they used to. Mm -hmm. And so I am am, am interested to hear uh, or see, I guess I should say, as we move forward, there have been all these assumptions that have lasted for so long in politics, but we're in a weird scrambled era right now. And so, yes, Trump might pull out some anti-Trump voters and could help Democrats. It also might pull out some, you know, Republicans who otherwise wouldn't be voting. And that could help some of these House I also think that some Republicans like David Valdeo, maybe uh, Duarte in the Central Valley, have done a better job than others like, say, Ken Calvert down in the Inland Empire, of distancing themselves from more, some of the more extreme parts of the Republican Party. Even uh, while they vote for yeah, all the well, same there's stuff. That. Yeah, I mean, well, that's they, the funny thing. Yeah, sure. They voted for Mike Johnson to be the speaker. And, and, and you know, Democrats are going to try to use that as well. But I, I do think, you know, let's face it, every election is about who turns out to vote, who's mobilized to vote. And I think that's really going to be the key. What What is the animating issue or candidate to get people to the polls? Yeah, I mean, that was huge for Democrats in, in 2022, the lack of turnout in a lot of these uh, House races. I think you look at some of these Central Valley seats, especially the Latino vote. Look, there was more than a third of Latino voters who turned out in the 2018 midterms didn't vote in 2022. That's something Democrats are going to be looking at, certainly in this Valadeo, Rudy Salas election, uh, perhaps in that John Doherty election as well, rematch against uh, Adam Gray. I think when you look at some of these suburban districts in Orange County, Democrats have been able to hold on to kind of this stable gains they've made among suburban voters in the Trump era. Orange County, I think the story of Democrats' turnaround there, maybe the the fuel was demographics, but the match was really Trump. And mm-hmm. that the turnaround started in 2016. When I, I, it was funny, I was talking with Dave Min this morning, who's a state senator who's running for Congress. He's working on this effort to make it easier to get Trump off the ballot, um, you know, through legal means. And we we're joking. He said, all my consultants says, Dave, brother, why are you doing this? Like, you want Trump right, on the right, ballot when yeah. you're running. Like, mm. And I think so it, it's a, it might be a different, uh, you know, set of calculations for some of those folks running in the suburbs. But Melanie's right. I think the the ticket splitting that has become so rare nationally has maintained to some effect in California in Mm -hmm. some of these races where you've seen 
much larger margins for Joe Biden than you have for congressional Democrats. Let's talk for a minute well, about the McCarthy seat. Unless you want, did well, you want to no, jump on something I actually want to just sort of mention like the three unknowns that are going to potentially play in all of these races real quick, which is what is happening with Israel and Gaza. Like, I just think we're too far out to really understand how that will, you know, impact especially Democrats and Joe Biden, but really all of these races. What's happening at the border? There's a lot of consternation on the left, especially among Latinos here in California. Senator Alex Padilla, um, I talked to uh, Congresswoman Annette uh, Barragon this week, who's the head of the Congressional Caucus there, very angry that Biden is engaging on border talks around, you know, tying aid to Ukraine. But that could help Biden. Well, right? yeah, maybe not so much in California, but he's going to win California. Yeah, but I mean, but in terms of like bringing out, you know, some of these sort of voters that I think Democrats are a little bit confused about, younger Latino men who have gone to the right in recent years. I mean, I think there are faction factors there that could play in. And then what happens with like is Trump a convicted felon by then? I mean, putting aside whether he's on the ballot in Colorado, there's just there's what 91 felony counts against him and all the civil cases. Yeah, and, you know, we, abortion also obviously a big issue in other states. I, and I don't know how that's going to play here. I mean, it could make a difference in some of the like the Michelle Steele seat or maybe in the Katie Porter seat, which is now really up for grabs. Um, I wonder if Katie Porter, you know, on a, after the day after the primary, if she doesn't make the top two and then that seat becomes competitive, could flip Republican. I mean, that's going to be, you know, you just, you just wonder, like, so they're going to wake up the day after the election with, you know, some stark realities. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, McCarthy, he's retiring. He January retired. 31st. Yeah, he's like gone uh, giving one of his fingers, shall we say, to the rest of the Republican <laughs> caucus there. And, uh, you know, we've got, of course, the George Santos seat uh, now open. And we, so the, th- the thing that's interesting, though, in that race is that there wasn't really a clear succession plan for the McCarthy seat. And so there's chaos that kind of echoes what's happening in the House where Republicans are in charge. And you've got Vince Fong, who wasn't going to run for the McCarthy seat, was going to run for reelection to the Assembly, changed his mind when Shannon Grove dropped out. And now the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, is saying, no, you're, you're on the ballot running for reelection to the Assembly. You can't be on the ballot for two different seats. It's going to court. And uh, we'll see where that ends up. But it's a mess. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, I know we're going to talk a little bit about ballot measures uh, in, in November in a second. I think when you talk, look at the Trump factor of being on the ballots, this congressional dispute happening in Bakersfield and some of the ballot measures, courts in California are going to play a huge role in shaping this 2024 election. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guests today are KQED's Guy Marzarati and Politico's Melanie Mason. Well, let's talk ballot measures then. Okay, so the big sort of fight I think um, that's that's worth kind of previewing is this question over what's kind of colloquially been become known in politics as the business roundtable measure. This is a ballot measure that would essentially make it way harder to both pass taxes and fees at the state and local level and would retroactively wipe out a bunch of previously uh, passed taxes and fees. There's a case before the Supreme Court seeking to take it off the ballot. Um, California Supreme Court. California Supreme Court. Yeah. I I mean, Melanie, I I know you're not in Sacramento anymore, but this is like a huge priority for the Newsom administration and others. And I'm just curious, like how you think Democrats talk about this. Nobody likes taxes. Right. But like people do like police and roads to work. Right. Exactly. People like what their taxes are funding. And so I think that if it comes to the case where Democrats or labor unions um, or, you know, the various other interested parties have to uh, sell this. Yes. I mean, 
being able to say like, we want your taxes to go down is like a very popular um, uh, selling point for the business roundtable. But I, I think it really is a matter of can Democrats really spell out what is at stake and mm. what uh, people would lose if those taxes were wiped out. It's a it's a little bit of a harder argument, which is why I think that this uh, court ruling is going to be so consequential. Yeah. And of course, the California League of Cities is calling this an existential threat to cities, because, as you said, you know, whether you're a red county or a blue county or somewhere in the middle, you rely on these things from, you know, for libraries and firefighting and law enforcement and all that stuff. Um, and, and then there's, the Democrats have kind of a countermeasure that they're putting on that would you know, basically says, OK, you want to raise the threshold to two thirds and make it retroactive? Fine. Then we're going to apply that to your measure as well. So, uh, you know, that, well, that's kind of a... And I, everyone has glazed over because this is, like, yeah. so hard to it's explain. And not to be left out, there's a third measure Democrats have also put on the ballot to lower the threshold <laughs> for taxes on infrastructure and housing. So you have all these three, you know, potentially headed to the ballot in November. And I think what makes it interesting is historically we've had kind of a tie break system. If there's two ballot measures, they're kind of the same topic. Whichever one gets more votes if they both pass. These are all intersecting in really complicated ways. Speaking of lawyers, that is going to ruin our Christmas next year. Well, there's also kind of a history of uh, when people are confused, they vote no. So they could vote them all down. Right. Okay, final minute we have left here, but I do wonder, um, we we see the governor really leaning in on behavioral health and homelessness. We have a bond measure and a measure on the March ballot. Um, uh, Scott, your predictions, like how, at the end of, of 2024, do you think Newsom can look and say, we're doing more on these issues that people care about so much? Uh, well, he can say it. I don't know that people are going <laughs> to feel it. Yeah. You know, that's the problem. I mean, a lot of these things take a, a long time, like care courts. You know, yes, it's being implemented. Implemented, but you're not going to feel anything for quite a while. Um, you know, I would say if, if there's a you know prediction I would make for the end of, of next year, it's that Kamala Harris makes a positive contribution to Joe Biden's reelection yeah. with younger voters, women, and also voters of color. Guy already had his prediction. Yeah, and I, just on the ballot measure, I think that's why politicians have come up with the verb addressing, right? We can say we're, <laughs> yeah. we're addressing this. I think Prop 1, it's it looks like it has the kind of coalition you need to pass. There's very there's not tons of organized opposition at this point to changing up how the state funds uh, mental health services. But it's not just that. Care Court is rolling out uh, right. this year. That's and what in, I mean. I mean, there's counties. a lot going there's a on. There's a lot going on in this space. And oh, by the way, a lot of the funding and rules during the pandemic that made it easier to build homeless housing are all going away. All right. We have to leave it there. Melanie Mason of Politico, Guy Marzarati of KQED. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beale. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. We'll see you next week. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.